Hello, and welcome to our latest episode of 30 for Net Zero 30. I'm Anna Marie Slot, Global Sustainability and ESG Partner here at Ashurst, and we're speaking with 30 changemakers around the globe about actions to take today to deliver on 2030 goals. Today, we are lucky to be joined by Denise Adaro, Head of ESG and Sustainability at PAI Partners. Thank you so much for joining us today, Denise. I mean, you've had such a fascinating background uh, in the world of sustainability. Perhaps you could start by giving us a little bit about the various things that you've done and how you came um, to PAI Partners. Thank you, Anna-Marie. Um, so as you said, I recently joined PAI Partners and it truly is, in my opinion, a transformative opportunity in terms of taking sustainability where it needs to go to the heart of changing business models. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But in terms of what my background is, I will say um, it's sort of, uh, or rather my partner tells me this, I've been married to sustainable finance for the last 12 years. And by that, I mean, I've lived and breathed it. I, I was at the World Bank Group's um, private sector arm IFC for that period, where I worked extensively on integrating ESG into public capital markets. Um, I was the head of investor relations and sustainable finance coordination. And in parallel, I was the, a founding uh, member of the executive committee of the Green Social and Sustainability Bond Principles, um, which I left um, only a couple of months ago as the chair for the last couple of years. And even before that, I would say that whilst I perhaps have been married to sustainable finance over the last 12 years, as I said, I was joined at the hip uh, because before that we had perhaps courted a while, but I didn't know its name, let's just say that. I mean it to say that there were aspects of sustainable finance in my earlier career, but of course it wasn't called by the name we know it as today. Um, just to wrap up, I, my, I would summarize by saying that my career has been building blocks of bringing finance and sustainability together to this point where I am now, which is assisting private sector companies to actually implement their sustainability journeys to net zero. Fascinating background. Um, and so clearly you've been, you've been in this for a while. So what is the biggest shift that you might have seen, particularly over the last 18 months? Because I think that's where a lot of change has started to happen. Um, and, you know, we, we've talked about COP26 in the past, but what what maybe here we are uh, right in the midst of COP27, what would you expect or would you like to have come out of COP27? I'm going to cheat and say two things here. And reason being, it is my personal mission to have the sustainability messaging go beyond environmental. Um, at the, the core of this in the end is that climate change is in fact a social problem. Um, so to me, the biggest shift I, I will say, I celebrate over the last 18 months, two of them have been one, gender balance. So the EU law, of course, to improve gender balance on company boards and that directive, which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, which will have to be transposed into national law, of course. Uh, but that lays down that 40% of 
non-executive director positions in listed companies should be held by members of the underrepresented sex by 2026. It does that by addressing transparency in the shortlisting candidates, etc. So I'm a fan of that. The because as you know, I think just to, to for the listeners' purpose, in the EU, fewer than one in ten chief executives and board chairs are female. It's essentially a really dismal number that has continued to remain so um, in as far as as long as it, it has, in fact. Um, so. The second thing I would say is the plastic treaty, or rather the makings of it. So again, the, in Nairobi, we saw 175 countries agree to establish this committee to bring about what will be a legally binding treaty to tackle the plastic scourge, shall I say. Um, and I always think it's nice to add context to this, and, and we know this, that the statistics, 11 million metric tons of plastic waste ends up in water every year, and that number is expected to triple by 2040. And I need not you know, paint what that looks like in terms of how that impacts the oceans, our bodies, in fact, with microplastics, etc. And so that treaty will bring about cutting plastic waste through recycling, sustainable packaging design. These are things that, of course, that uh, even in my current role, I'm working with our portfolio companies to implement, limiting production of virgin plastics in the first place. So this treaty, what's exciting about it is that it's meant to be uh, in place by the end of 2024, excuse me. And that's really a rapid, um, timeline because most global treaties uh, take five to ten years so those are the two things that I would say that I'm really excited about and I've seen the shift in in the last 18 months um, as to COP well I think what was your question again Anna on that just sort of what what would you expect from from COP 27 or or if that's if that's not something no, 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 no. I, I, that is too positive what would you like like to have come out it's of interesting because it? I, I wanted to know how you asked the question I understood the content of it and the reason <laughs> why is because you whether you were using the word expect or hope <laughs> <laughs> um, you know we we're approaching this COP um in a year that will rank among the 10 warmest years on record you know, we've seen the effects of climate change. You know, we've seen what's happened. A third of Pakistan flooded. We've had the hottest summer in 500 years in Europe. Um, you know, in the, in the US, you had the hurricane in. So really, no economy is immune from, from the climate crisis, as we know. And looking back at the last COP where you know, everyone calls that the finance cop because you know, we had all these uh, members of the financial institutions there who were not the scenes, be it uh, COP27. But the achievements that uh, we got from COP26, you know, the phasing down of coal-fired uh, power plants, which of course was the first time that's been explicitly included in, in climate talk decisions. Um, what's happened there? What's happened with you know, the reduction of uh, methane emissions, reversing deforestation, et cetera. So these, and the pledge, by the way, to uh, finance uh, to provide more financing to developing countries. So I'm thinking that we can 
quote unquote, expect to see climate adaptation at the center of these talks based on what's happened over the last year. But you might remember, Anna-Marie, if you were in Glasgow last year, that uh, Alok Sharma, the uh, UK's president of COP26, I think he had he put it nicely when he said that, uh, uh, that we'd kept one and a half alive, but that its pulse was weak and it would only survive if we kept our promises and translating that into, of course, action. So perhaps that, that is the question, is that have these promises, have we actually started making headway to that? I don't know. Um, perhaps um, in just to, to wrap up, I will say that we can expect that there will be talks around climate adaptation, <clears throat> but of course it goes way beyond that. But I think looking back at seeing and checking the pulse to see, does it remain weak? Is it dead? Are we alive? And this is where it is. That's the heart of it is the, the expectations and the mm -hmm. hope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All really interesting. I mean, the 1.5 uh, alive is is such an interesting, number one, it rhymes, so that's helpful for people. But um, it, it also is scientifically bounded, right? You know, your reference to all of the catastrophes that have happened, that's not something that is going to be fixed overnight. And that adaptation to all of those things that are happening in the climate and will continue to happen in the climate, I think, is something that no one's really talked that much about up till now. So I think it, I think if you're right, if adaptation ends up at the heart, that that becomes in some ways a big win um, in and of itself to really understand for people to bring it home what that what that's going to look like. Um, and why actions should be taken now, uh, because that's what we're trying to get to, right? The, the, the re real action now, um, and and less talk. <laughs> Although, yeah, this is a podcast. So, um, in terms of those actions, you know, what do you think is going to be the real? What what would be a real driver? You've talked about delivery on the on the promises around finance. Um, you know, you, you've taken this new role where you're actually, you know, day to day engaging with those portfolio companies. Is there is there something that you could put your finger on and say, look, this is going to be a game changer if would people truly engage at, you know, X? Mm. So I love that because I think one needs to have it. We need a systematic change. Right. So and, and the way that we've been approaching in mm -hmm. silos has not yielded much success. The one, I, I don't necessarily think there's one specific action, but I, there are a number of them, but it, I will focus on this. So heavy industry is currently responsible for around 30% of GHG emissions, and that's projected to grow for reasons that I won't get into because I think most of you know. Now, the key to transition is really making sure that we can drive down the prices of clean methods and technologies. We need to make it commercially appealing for companies whose mandate it is, right? Their management's mandate is what? To make money alongside nowadays, you know, um, you know caring for the society, the planet, mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. But that is, that's their purpose. So it needs to be that compared to carbon intensive conventional techniques, clean methods win. Now, to achieve that, 
to my mind, I would say, we need to see more capital channeled towards breakthroughs. Always talking about it is nice. We love talking. We're on a podcast, as you said. Research is incredibly important, but we ought to work towards decarbonizing industries such as steel, you know, petrochemicals, fertilizers, etc., shipping, aviation. I mean, these are not industries that they are alternatives at the moment um, that are, you, you know, um, shall I say, putting us on that path to one and a half. The two, some of them are, you know, the darlings of discussions these days, and some not, because you mentioned the word nuclear, and it puts people's back up. But nuclear fission power plants, of course, have the disadvantage of generating radioactive waste, which is here for millions of years, as we know. Fusion, on the other hand, does not create any long-lived radio radioactive nuclear waste. And this, I, I'm sad to report, is dinner time conversation at the Odaro household because my, <laughs> my, my brother is a nuclear engineer. And I started off, you know, from the the... I was the most perhaps anti-nuclear person that's been on your podcast <laughs> um, until you know my brother was kind enough to explain some of this to me and I think it, it goes to the heart of education and, and how we need to educate not only policymakers, businesses etc as to what options are what risks are and how we can mitigate those so at the moment of course fusion is is not even a baby it's an embryo in terms of being able to produce the at the scale we need but i'm confident that the more we see um not only political support and financing directed to that that we can scale that the second would be green hydrogen mm. and i think both of these can play a central role in helping us reach net zero emissions by 2050 and this, of course, is complementing other technologies, you know, renewable power, you know, et cetera. Um, offshore wind is, is also taking off, et cetera. I mean, technology is maturing. Um, those that have been in existence, of course, solar, et cetera. But I, I really want to see these more newer and innovative technologies scale. Mm -hmm. So you've uh, you've kind of opened the door to to my next question in your conversation with your brother. Um, so, in terms of your own commitment to net zero, because right, this, there, there's there's society as a whole, but then society is comprised of all the people within it. Are, do you do you have any personal commitments around, um, you know, what you might change or adapt in the next kind of twelve months? I do. <laughs> I have. I'm four weeks into my new role, um, which I am terribly excited about. I have a team who are young and just passionate. We're all singing from the same hymn sheet um, on sustainability. My commitment to net zero is empowering my team. We have fellow companies within PAI that span, you know, healthcare, industrial, food and consumer. Um, and really, as I had mentioned, I think this is where the rubber meets the road is making business decisions where you can have options that do better for profits, people, and the planet. And so I approach sustainability with pragmatism. And so to me, my commitment is that the next 12 months is building out what would be the, the best, a best in class ESG team within the private equity sector. And I do believe that the impact there is real 
and phenomenal. Mm. No, definitely. I mean, because I think in that sector, there are lots of people who want to be doing something. Not, and maybe that's true for all sectors. There's people who want to do things, but they just don't know what to do, right? It's such a yeah. big topic and it's such a such an overwhelming concept. I had this question yesterday from somebody. How can you you know, spend all this time talking about sustainability and, 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 you know, and, and not wake up anxious every morning. Right. And so it's really, it is empowering people to take action, to do, to, 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 to get up that learning curve. So they understand when I say I'm interested, this is what I could possibly be doing. And I think your, your focus on, you know, really creating a commercial viable, solution for businesses to grab onto with both hands i mean who wouldn't um as a as a business grab onto something that's emerging and, and great tech and commercially appealable um last question you know one one takeaway for for listeners I, I think we've talked about education we've talked about upskilling we've talked about um you know the, the viability of various technologies and the role of finance what do you think it comes back to what you just touched on. In fact, I think you have, you need, you know, stakeholder pressure, which we've seen. You need to see um, that policy is working in your favor. And so my one word would be acceleration. Let's accelerate this because even when businesses make a decision to go towards, you know, net zero or, or to commit to so DNI or, or better social practices, et cetera. There's also the issue of how long does it take to implement some of these things? Policy, getting permits to put things in place. Mm, mm, yeah. The timeline for some of these is just outrageous. So I think acceleration in every way, accelerating capital to the right areas, accelerating the education of options, but particularly risks and what the opportunities are. We need to see that. We need to see also policy accelerating that is not necessarily driving people away by saying, I can still operate in this safe place if I don't put my hand up to say that I want to do sustainable business. I'll just stay <laughs> over there instead of having to report 14,000 KPIs. You know, so how do we do that? I think, you know, there are many, there are many, and, and we'll all be in jobs for a long time trying to figure this out. There's no, you know, silver bullet. However, my one word would be acceleration. That's an excellent theme. I think we might, we're going to have to leave on that so that people walk away with that. So go back to your desks uh, or, or uh, finish up your walks. Hopefully you're out uh, getting some exercise and think about what can you accelerate today in how you and your company are approaching uh, sustainability. Super. Thank you so much for for your time, Denise, and for your insights. I mean, it's fantastic to to hear from someone who's been so integrated for so long. Um, and appreciate your time today. It's been wonderful and such a delight. And uh, I'll be happy to come back whenever you want me. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it worthwhile. To learn more about the issues we've just covered, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. This 30 for Net Zero 30 episode is just one small part of our continuing podcast series, ESG Matters at Ashurst. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.